Hello and welcome to episode 620 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. This is Monster Kid Radio. I am your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, welcoming you to the show with another play. We're gotta play the song Manos, the Hands of Fate by the Seatopians from their album Underwater Ally. You can find them at theseatopians.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes. And we're playing this song because we are smack dab in the middle of some Manos coverage. We introduced my wife Beth to Manos the Hands of Fate last week on the show, and this week we are introducing somebody else to Manos the Hands of Fate, somebody who's never seen the movie before. You know him because he really helped us out here on Monster Kid Radio when I was taking some time off for the wedding and everything else. Steve Turek is here this week to talk about Manos the Hands of Fate. He had never seen the movie before, and he doubled down. No, he tripled down because he also wanted to watch Manos, The Rise of Torgo, and Manos Returns. Yeah, we've got a triple dose of Manos, The Hands of Fate. Three hands of Manos being dealt? I, I don't know. Anyway, that's what's coming up in this week's episode of the podcast. Super excited about that. Plus, of course, we've got Mark Matsky's Beta Capsule review because you can never have too much Ultraman and... Kenny's look at famous monsters of Filmland coming up in this episode as well. And really, I'm just excited to get to it. So we're going to cut this short and get into the rest of the show right now. Bela Lugosi's Dracula, Monsters from Under the Sea, Atomic Frankensteins, and Grandpa Monster 2. Classic monster memorabilia vendors, movie and TV stars, signing autographed photos. It's all coming to the Marriott Pittsburgh North, June 16th through the 18th, 2023. It's Monster Bash! Fans who grew up with monster movies in the theater and on TV will descend on the Marriott Pittsburgh North. Hundreds and hundreds of fans. Don't you scare miss out as fans travel from all over the country to meet, shop, and enjoy classic monster entertainment. Coming to Monster Bash in June, Audrey Dalton, star of The Monster That Challenged the World, and Boris Karloff's thriller TV shows. Charlotte Austin, who starred in Frankenstein 1970 with Karloff and Ed Wood's The Bride and the Beast. Lynn Lugosi Sparks, the granddaughter of Dracula himself, Bela Lugosi. Daniel Roebuck, star of countless films, TV's Matlock, and Grandpa Munster in the latest Munsters movie. Plus, he's a super fan and collector of classic monster memorabilia. Beverly Washburn, actress in Spider Baby with Lon Chaney Jr., Thriller, and Disney's Old Yeller. Tom Savini, actor, makeup man, special effects genius, with credits that include Creepshow, Tales from the Dark Side, The Black Phone, and so much more. Pamela Pierce, actress and daughter of the director that brought us The Legend of Boggy Creek. John Russo, co-writer and zombie from the original Night of the Living Dead, the origin of the modern zombie and Ohio TV horror host legend, the one and only Son of Ghoul, still creeping to TV sets after all these years. Plus, Cleveland horror hosts Drac and Countess Corita. Monster Bash is wall-to-wall vendors at a giant horror hotel packed with classic monster movie fans. Don't miss out. 
three-day VIP admission is $55 in advance or $60 at the door for all three packed days. Single-day admission at the door is $25. It's all at the Pittsburgh Marriott North, Friday through Sunday, June 16th through the 18th, 2023. Get your advanced membership admission online at creepyclassics.com. That's creepyclassics.com. More information is available at monsterbash.us or call 724-238-4317. It's Monster Bash. Ichiro's legs flew into the air. His tiger-striped board sailed over his head, and a wall of blue water crashed down on him, trying to crush the air out of his lungs. For a moment, he found himself head down in the water column, with a surge of the wave pushing him toward the azure depths below. Somehow, he managed to hold on to the GoPro during the wipeout, but now the camera clenched in his fist kept him from easily righting himself. As he writhed in the deep, a dark shape loomed up out of the blue. In Monster Shark on a Nude Beach, a shy marine biologist must up his game and stop a series of shark attacks at the Caribbean's most famous clothing-optional playground. Award-winning author Stephen D. Sullivan brings you this sexy, action-packed summer read, perfect for fans of The Meg and Jaws. Read three chapters free on Amazon. Find out more at buffbeach.com or sdsullivan.com. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. Return of Ultraman, Episode 14, Terror of the Two Giant Monsters, The Great Tokyo Tornado. First air date, July 2nd, 1971. Released theatrically with Episode 13, as Return of Ultraman, Fear of the Tornado Monsters, as part of the Toho Champion Festival, December 12, 1971. Picking up at the precise moment episode 13 ended, Ultraman deflects the tsunami unleashed by Sigaroth, but the action depletes his energy and he endures a sound thrashing by Simons before reverting to human form. With three days to solve the riddle of Simon's appearance before the Japanese self-defense force attacks again, Go has a breakthrough. While visiting with the Sakatas, he observes their pet bird with eggs waiting to hatch and hypothesizes that Simon's has come ashore to spawn. Before anything can be done with this knowledge, the owner of the oil refinery prevails upon the military to attack a day earlier than promised and their barrage not only fails to destroy Simons, but also summons Sigaroth. Together, the monsters generate a tremendous tornado, which rips the refinery to shreds and sends monster attack teams scrambling. Under pressure, MAT unveils their plan to shoot the horns of the kaiju using an experimental laser. But when Captain Kato's shot misses the mark, Another tornado sends Go's aircraft into a tailspin, and with it, the hopes for the survival of Tokyo. Episode 14 continues the tragic tale of Simons and Sigaroth in grand fashion, with an abundance of monster destruction, not to mention two significant sequences featuring Ultraman. Observant viewers will note that there are a couple of brief shots imported from Rodan, 
included in the tornado scenes, a testament to special effects wizard Eiji Tsuburaya's artistry since the footage was 15 years old in 1971. As mentioned last time, Akiji Kobayashi guest stars as Captain Pops Takamura, spending much of this episode in a shock-induced stupor. But Kobayashi would enjoy a long, robust career up to the mid-1990s with roles in Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, Godzilla and Mothra The Battle for Earth, and Gamera 2 Attack of Legion. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Mansky reporting. and an abyss of horror opens up. See these prehistoric beasts emerge from the bowels of the earth after 200 million years to devastate mankind. Supersonic jets cannot catch him. Rockets cannot stop him. Armored tanks are helpless before him. Even guided missiles are powerless. See Rodin destroy a modern city, leveling it to the earth with a killing airstream of his mighty wings. Nothing can stop him. Nothing escapes this monstrous beast of evil. theater soon, The Beast of Yucca Flats, filmed on the burning hot sands by Yucca Flats. See terror, panic, murder. See the Cardoza and Francis production of The Beast of Yucca Flats. See a man turn killer. See a woman ravaged. See one of the most exciting movies ever made. See the Beast of Yucca Flats. A killer on the loose. Death sweeps across the desert. Panic. A bloodthirsty killer stalks a moonlit desert. See the Beast of Yucca Flats. splendor these three must make their own world their own new code of morals where are you going to evelyn and so to bed we are married you know martin 
Increasing tensions reveal the driving, forceful possessiveness of the gambler. Please don't. And the contrasting, sensitive understanding of the lawyer, creating a triangle, dangerous and violent. The last woman on earth born to bear the brand of two men. Ask me, though, Martin. I need you to ask me. All right, Ev, I do want you with me. So he's leaving, and not just because of what he did to you. Did to me? Harold, Martin didn't rape me. That's enough. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. This month, we are taking a closer look at the misunderstood classic, Mano's Hands of Fate. This film was never covered by FM, but it wasn't because Forey was shy about featuring misunderstood films. In fact, the pages of FM were filled with photos and articles of any movie that wanted to promote itself and famous monsters. This month, we will take a look at several of them and see how FM sung their praises, most of the time sight unseen. Today's misunderstood film defies description and thus reaches the exalted, misunderstood status. It truly has to be seen to be believed. I don't think Foray saw it before putting it in his magazine. I am sure he was ashamed when he did see it, because now it was enshrined in FM's hallowed pages for decades to come. Which classic are we talking about today? The Horrors of Spider Island. Let's hear some highlights from the preview article found in FM 34 from October of 1965, which messed up six pages with eight photos and this commentary. We've been hearing about this film for a couple of years. If memory serves us right, it was made partly in Yugoslavia. It's already been released in Latin America, where they call it the Island of Terror. Now, about to be shown in the USA, you'll see it as... The Horrors of Spider Island. Seven female dancers are chosen in Hollywood to fly to the Far East to entertain. En route, the plane develops engine trouble, wanders off course, and finally crashes in the sea. Fortunately, there is a small island nearby, and the girls manage to make their way there on an inflated rubber raft, together with Gary, the man who gave them the job. Setting out to explore their surroundings, they are drawn inland by a mysterious humming sound, which leads them towards a little hut in a jungle clearing. Together, they enter the building and... All are horror-struck to see a man suspended in air like an abandoned puppet, supported only by unbelievably large and strong spiderwebs. Gary runs to the man, tries to unclench the hands and lower him from the net, but it is impossible. He has to be cut down. Leaving the gruesome discovery, Gary goes scouting for food. All but one girl accompanies him. Unbeknownst to the girl who remains behind, a huge, hairy shape hovers over her. On the limb of a tree, the giant spider of the island creeps and is about to leap on her when the girl decides to join the others and the frustrated spider retreats. Restless that night, Gary goes for a walk in the woods. Lurking there amid the shadows is the black horror. The spider strikes. With superhuman effort, Gary gets the hairy thing off his neck, shoots it, but almost immediately paralyzing pain hits him in his neck. He falls to the earth convulsively. Hair begins to cover his hands and face. The venom of the spider is turning him into a thing of horror. 
When the girls miss Gary, they go searching for him. One of the girls, Linda, wanders away from the rest, soon finds herself alone by a pool. As she kneels down to refresh herself, she sees a reflection of a ghastly half-human creature behind her. She screams! A hairy claw smothers her scream, but the girls have heard and run to her aid. Too late, Linda is dead, just like the man in the net. The girls get hysterical. We're all going to get killed, cries Babs, when they're back in the hut. One of the girls reacts to this with resentment and starts pulling Babs' hair. The girls begin to fight when suddenly they are frozen by a sound from outside. Georgia is nearest the door and she lets out a terrible cry. When hairy paws suddenly appear from the darkness and clutch her about the throat, she faints and her attacker disappears. Two men arrive on the island by a little boat. They do not know the girls are there, nor are the girls aware of them. Meanwhile, the girls find Gary's gun, thinking he has been captured by the spider. When they hear a noise, the girl with the gun whirls, only to be confronted by Joe, one of the new men on the island. Later on, one of the girls, Gladys, discovers the other man, Robbie, and brings him back to the hut. After some time, Robbie goes wandering. Gladys goes in search of him, and she discovers him at the base of a tree, apparently asleep. But when she tries to waken him, to her horror, he falls over dead. Then she hears the sinister zoom, the hum of the giant spider, and screams for help. Gladys runs for her life. In the shadows of the jungle, we see the hideously transformed Gary. Gladys climbs a rocky precipice. Joe arrives on the scene with the gun sees the half-human Gary, pursuing Gladys, aims at him, but finds he is out of ammo. Run back for ammo, quick, he tells Georgia, but before the girl can bring back the cartridges, Gary the monster confronts Gladys and forces her off the cliff to her death. Robbie rushes back to the hut, and so does Gary. There they meet and fight. Joe is getting the life choked from him when Georgia has an inspiration lights a torch, and approaches the monstrous Joe. Joe screams and flees. All the girls arm themselves with torches and chase the no longer human Joe. He runs into a quagmire and is sucked under by the quicksand. Those who remain alive are finally rescued from the nightmare of Spider Island. Whoops, I spoiled it. Don't be upset. If it discourages you to miss this flick, you will thank me in the end. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. You will freeze as you watch a warped scientist become transformed into a godless beast when his bloody scalpel probes the forbidden secrets of a woman's flesh. In Atomage Vampire, you will flame for the stark ritual of a beautiful girl's last searing dance. As tragedy forever mars her loveliness, leaving her to face a world of terror. I give you my word that I will restore your face, restore all your beauty. You will cringe as the demented doctor experiments with a girl's trusting innocence.
but to possess the living miracle wrought by his twisted genius, he must forever sacrifice his soul to the cunning gods of evil. A transplant directly from another human being. A mad creature born of the atomic age, now shackled to a world of rotting bodies and violent death. A sadist, a criminal, a depraved animal, more ferocious than Jekyll, more monstrous than Frankenstein, more bloody than Dracula. Fire a volley through the window pane. You will gasp as lust and madness stalk the dark and screaming night in Atom Age Vampire. I've been trying to capture a wolf to extract his glands. But tell me, Professor, have you ever experimented on yourself? The new doctor, suspect. Beauties, the prey of fiendish desires. A village up in arms. The path, we're at the top of the stairs. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night Ah, I mean monster kids can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Listeners, I know you have not had enough of this man's voice. Uh, you listen to his podcast. And you listen to him here on Monster Kid Radio when I'm too busy getting married and stuff. So to, to thank him for all of his hard work in keeping Monster Kid Radio afloat, keeping the Monster Kid machine going, I thought I'd invite Steve Turek to come by Monster Kid Radio to talk about Manos the Hands of Fate. Thanks, buddy. Oh, you're welcome. I don't know what it is as a reward or a punishment. You know, we'll talk about that as we go through. <laughs> Oh, man. You know what? I, I'm not going to get too down on things. And yeah, I, I don't know what your take is because I was shocked when you told me you had never seen Manos before when you reached out to me about this. So I, I don't want to, you know, assume or, or put words in your mouth regarding the film or whatever. So before we get into all of that, how have things been going with you, man? We were talking before we started recording about all the stuff you're doing with your own podcasts. 
Oh, yeah. It's been a lot of fun. Alistair and I have been doing our Hammerama episodes. And uh, listeners, an episode that's going to be coming out later this month on Hammerama is we're going to be talking about Twins of Evil. And we're joined by one of the people from the, that was in Twins of Evil, Judy Matheson. So she's going to be with us for most of the episode, joining us in our discussion about it. So it's a little treat to have somebody actually from the movie helping us talk about the movie. I think that's, that's a lot of fun. Right That's there. super and, cool. Yeah, and, and we've been doing lots of movie discussions on Frank Delostritos talking about White Zombie and I Walked With the Zombie with me will be out around this time. And I did an interview, a second interview with Daniel Roebuck that just came out. And if you go back to our early interview I did with him last year in the fall, we talked about The Monsters from 2022 and that he was in where he played the Count. Not Grandpa, because there were no grandkids during this movie. It's a, a prequel. But he was the count, and he's going to be at Monster Bash this June. So it's going to be fun time to you know get to meet him again and talk with him there. That kind of fun stuff. It's a lot of things on the hopper. And I got an interview that hopefully everything will work out. She agreed to it already. That ties in with all three of these movies. And who would that be there? Who would be the one person that would be in all three of these movies that I could interview? Monster Kid Radio Irregular, Jackie Ray Naaman Jones. Jackie's awesome. And when you were telling me that you are lining that up, I was like, dude, I'm trying to get that lined up too. That's great. She's been on the show a couple of times here, and I can tell you, you're in for a treat. She's just fun to chat with. Well, I'm looking forward to it. And I figured I just watched the, the three movies, and I'll, I'll look at some of the other stuff she's done too before we do the interview. But like, if I'm going to do it, let's do it now while it's all fresh in my mind. <laughs> Manos is permanent. How will it ever leave your mind? Uh, well, at my age, a lot of things leave my mind. Just ask my children. So you, re you reach a certain age where sometimes the in the output's going faster than the input. <laughs> wow. She's done a lot of things Manos-related, and lately she's been doing a lot of work with Joe Sherlock, friend of the show, local filmmaker in the Pacific Northwest, working with a lot of his stuff as well, appearing on screen. And just her her career, her life is fascinating to me. Uh, if you haven't read her book, Growing Up Monos, listeners, I highly recommend it. Uh, it's a good read. It's a great story. It's not just about the making of Monos. Uh, it's, it's really an interesting, uh, well, it's an autobiography, I suppose. And I would recommend it. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes, of course. And I want to thank you again, Derek, for letting me help fill in for you while you were doing your um unintentional hiatus because you had all those personal things coming up. And I wish I would have known that you had that gap of over like almost two weeks. I could have did another episode for you, but I thought, you know, I didn't know, I guess you didn't know either with the move and the getting things reorganized. You needed an extra week. I would have did another one for you. So I apologize for that. I didn't know. Oh, no, I, I did not know myself. And you're thanking me, dude, you the one that did us the solid. Uh, I think all the monster kid listeners, monster kid radio listeners, Appreciate all of your hard work. And like I said, I'm rewarding you by talking about Monos. So, you know, I think it's a win-win. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and, and listeners, uh, Derek only wanted me to talk about Monos, the hands of fate. I was the one who came up with the clever idea, hey, let's do Monos Returns and Monos The Rise of Torgo, which I did not know at the time that Derek had not seen until I listened to your last episode where, where you mentioned you had never seen The Rise of Torgo. You didn't, I think you didn't even know it was out. You know, I think I had heard about it at one point, and uh, I, I 
just one of those things that I kind of spaced on um, for whatever reason. You know, I, I have an interesting, I feel like I have an interesting relationship with Monos and, and we'll talk about that. You know, we'll, we'll get to that, but you know, I, I don't want to talk about the prequel. I don't want to talk about the sequel uh, as officially unofficial, unofficially they are. I want to talk about the original with somebody who had never seen the movie. I did this last week with my wife, Beth. I would love to do that here with you, Steve. I want to hear why you haven't seen Monos yet and initial thoughts after having seen it. Well, the reason I never saw it, but I talked to people, and then it's a very polarized movie. It seems like 80% of the people don't like the movie, and it seems like 20% love the movie. I think that's fair. You know, from Don't you think that's fair percentage-wise? You know, yeah, probably. People react. And I know you're one of those, and and, and several of your listeners, too, are, are some of the people that love, love Thanos the Hantafy. And... I remember talking to Ron Adams about it at um, a mid-Atlantic nostalgia convention a few years ago. And I asked him his opinion and he, and he just told me like, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. And that one stuck with me for a while thinking, you know, it's not often Ron will say this this is a tough watch. (laughs) Uh, I think he, I think he looked at it as again, the 80%, 20% and he knew odds were, you know, that somebody might not like the movie. And so that's why I just figured, you know, there's so many movies out there for me to watch. And also when I'm prepping for interviews, I'm trying to watch a lot of different movies that I might not have seen yet to talk to the interviewee about. Besides movies that we're doing movie discussions about, as you know, there's only so much time that you have. Mm -hmm. And so it was easy for me to say, well, if I'm ever going to do a show where somebody, like on my show, where somebody rolled it and picked that movie, I'd watch it then. or I I knew the only other place it would be would be your show. I didn't think there was going to be an inner show that was going to contact me and say, hey, <laughs> do you want to do Monos the Hands of Fate? It was going to either be somebody like you, where I rolled the die, and you said, see, we're going to do this one. And I would be stuck then, or it'd be on your show. Oh, man. Um, yeah. Maybe you know, I didn't want to like, put it off. Yeah, it's not going to be like where somebody who was involved in a Hammer film can make a comment on Twitter that leads to a conversation about getting on the show. I can't imagine that just a random conversation anywhere would lead to, hey, let's talk about Monos on your show. That's not what you do. <laughs> well, I'm I'm honored that you bit the bullet and, and took the Monos hit to talk about it here on the show. I appreciate it. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. And, and like I said, I was able to ask Jackie about doing the interview. And she agreed to it. So in a sense, it will actually pop up on my show. So in a sense, it will be on both shows. I would have to watch either way. Well, I'm grateful that we get to talk about your first time getting monosed. Um, yeah, I think I just used monos as a verb. Getting monosed on Monster Kid Radio. How did you watch it? YouTube, Amazon, some other streaming service. Do you own it? Uh, on disc, I own it? You... no, I, I do not own it. I don't own any of these three movies. Uh, I watched. I think it was on Tubi. Okay, okay. I don't know. The, the reason I ask is I don't know what version Tubi has. Um, when I showed it to Beth the other day, and yes, my marriage did survive that. Uh, um, 
it was a YouTube copy, which was the Blu-ray remaster that somebody had uploaded to YouTube. Probably not the best way to watch it since I actually own the disc somewhere around here. It just hasn't been unpacked yet. Uh, so I was just curious um, what version you had seen because the Blu-ray version does add another sense of artificialness to it. No, I don't think that's a good thing or a bad thing, just a different way to consume the film or experience the film. As you know, and a lot of listeners know, I've sometimes taken the movie and made it black and white and shown it on the Monster Kid Movie Club movie stream, which we'll be bringing back at some point in the near future. But yeah, the Tubi version, I wonder how that holds up. Was it pretty scratchy or or how did it look to you? Um. I'm trying to remember now exactly the, the picture quality because it's been it was two weeks ago because I thought we'd be you and I both thought we'd be doing this sooner but you know it's like we said issues with the movie getting your um, recording equipment all set up and I think you had that computer issue you had a lot of things hit at one time it was yeah like boom 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 I don't remember it being a bad version I mean I've seen some things where the quality of the print is poor uh, I, there's an episode we did back on my show for Journey's End which was part of the James Well retrospective series that we did. And the only quality is the YouTube one, and it's poor quality. And, and even if you find it on other spots, the quality of it, is, is that's just the way it is. There's, there's, there's not read or whatever, or the rights issues or whatever. Nobody's going back and fixed it, you know, to try to make it look better. Well, and, even some uh, movies so, that we've talked about on Monster Kid Radio, you know, we've done this kind of sort of series of, sight unseen movies where you'll find something or I'll find something. Usually you find something um, on Amazon that neither one of us have seen or even heard of. And it's always a gamble. You know, is it going to be a good transfer or are we going to enjoy it or get distracted by the quality? So I was just curious about that. Yeah. And the quality didn't bother me at all. The quality of the imaging did not bother me at all. Okay. So the print, it's just that, you know, so that did not, that did not impact me um, one way or the other. People that are more scholarly about the movie itself could probably look at it in 2B and be able to identify exactly which version it was um, that they put out there. I, I, I have no clue. Uh, but it was, it was an interesting experience. Uh, I know I listened to your episode last week, so I know I can agree with Seth in that it takes a long time to get going. <laughs> <laughs> make sure you are not sleepy when attempting to start this movie <laughs> no you're you're not wrong you're you're not wrong it does open pretty slow once they get to the house it seems to correct some of its pacing issues but there's still a lot that just little trims here and there but if you trim it too much, you end up with something that maybe runs 40 minutes, and that's not really a feature film anymore. So uh, there, there's a lot of pacing and, and sluggishness at the beginning. That opening drive, it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And on. You almost make me think of that Muppet song. It just goes on and on and on and on and on, 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 on. Wow. All right. All right. No, I'm getting that no. from the second movie that we'll talk about. You know, for some reason, they did, in the second movie, they did break in the song for no apparent reason. Oh, okay. Yeah, we'll get to we'll that. We'll get to that soon. 
we'll get to that. So initial thoughts other than the long sure. and the pacing issues. Did you enjoy the experience? Were you like, Derek, I wanted to do something different? Like what 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 was your take? Every experience brings its own reward and punishment to it. You know, it's, it's, it's... <laughs> Okay. So there, there were there were some there was some good acting in here and there were some good you know that were put in the movie i particularly enjoyed um the master tom neiman you know that's it he, he was taking it and he just up to a different level with the the laugh and everything he, he, he was pretty much you knew what movie you're in for and he knew what movie he was doing and he just did it and and the wardrobing that they made for him you know fit the thing and i also like the wardrobing that they did for the the bride, the wives, you know, if it, I was like, Oh, what do you know? They all get this red, um, I don't know, the, the fabric sheet going in, in, in the white. I said, Oh, that's interesting. You know, it, it, it was something that, that stood out, you know, they, they were doing different things. And what I also like about, I like to call it the, the committee of wives. Mm, okay. They would discuss, and I think this was brought up by Beth too, and I agree with her 100 percent on this. Is like I thought it was interesting where they would have discussions. We should kill her. No, she's she's a child. It's not her fault. We you know, we should we should make her one of the wives. She'll grow. Oh, she'll grow into the role. And it, it, this whole discussion and how they had factions going back and forth. It was like the committee of wives, the parliament of wives, whatever you want to call it. It was it was interesting. It, it started to make me wonder about what is the power structure of this relationship. If one's called the master, the other is called the wives. Is it all him? Is it them? Is it equals? Obviously, the overall in the movie, the whole premise, the master, the, the overall power is Manos, but Manos was never really speaking. I don't remember. I don't remember Manos speaking during the movie. Like came through the master. Right. I don't remember. And unlike unlike some of the other movies where you get um, dialogue from Manos, and. Um, I, so, so I enjoyed those parts. I enjoyed I enjoyed the dynamic of the master, the wives, the interplay between them. Uh, Michael, the director, Howard T. Warren. Yeah. Oh, Hal Warren. Yeah. <laughs> that was a, a a chore to get through, but whatever <laughs> he was doing, that was it was just like I had to I had to, I had to pause the movie. Look like. Who is this guy? And then I thought, oh, it's the director, the writer, the producer. I'm like, yeah. Why it's not doing what he did? Notice it didn't say actor. <laughs> Sometimes it works, right? An independent filmmaker casting himself as the lead. And, you know, I haven't talked to him in a while, and I hope he's doing well and all that. And I know his family's been dealing with stuff. But like Josh Kennedy, for example, he's a skilled actor already on his own right but if you ask him he'll tell you the reason he casts himself as a lead in so many of his things is because well he knows his schedule he can schedule himself when he needs to be there and that sort of thing and budgetary wise i'm sure it also saves him the hassle of dealing with that so you get somebody like hal warren who's like i'm gonna make a movie i'm gonna be one of the leads i i don't know i <laughs> sometimes it works oh. and and this time it didn't really Oh, I understand why. And also, Josh doesn't always cast himself as the lead lead. Like, sometimes he's a supporting character, uh, you know, those kind of things. He's not always the top 
on the on the cast, you know, top. Yeah, of the and that chart. wasn't a dig. That wasn't a dig at all on our friend Josh, of course. Just no, no, no. You know, when you I'm talk to him, that's that's I'm, what I'm thinking on Warren. I'm digging yeah. on Warren. You know, <laughs> Josh, Josh could put himself as the number one. It wouldn't matter to me. Uh, there's other independent filmmakers I know, like a uh, Michael Worth, who's done a lot of different work. And when he does his independent film, a lot of times he's in it. He's not always the lead actor. Sometimes he's the, the supporting actor and stuff like that. But again. It's like you said, for budgetary reasons, scheduling reasons, they, and all, they put themselves in it. And, and also when you're writing it, which a lot of these independent filmmakers do, they know as the writer and also the director what they want that character to be able to do. And so when they're writing it, they're literally writing it to support himself. You know, in this like case, you're talking I don't about think another... that happened. Yeah, I mean, so Beth, Beth has been watching a lot of monster movies that I love, you know, these public domain, low budget gems or whatever. And we just watched the screaming skull last night and a character that is kind of sort of cut from the same cloth as Torgo in that movie. Mickey is played by Alex Nichol, who was the director of the film. And maybe that, that seems to really kind of work for that movie because again, he's not necessarily the lead, but he's able to do, what he envisioned for that character because he's the actor as well and he's got an acting background and that sort of thing. Hal Warren doesn't have an acting background. He sell <laughs> he sold fertilizer. <laughs> so um, oh, that, that that that's ironic. That that is there there are lines there we could make. <laughs> oh, Beth made them repeatedly when I told her that she's like, oh, so he's used to shoveling. Yeah, okay. Uh, he went right where I was thinking, but you know, yeah. it's, hey. yeah. and you know, the, the lore behind how Manos came to be and a bet with somebody about whether or not he can make a horror movie and, and all of that. I don't know. It's, it's an interesting story. I would have loved to have been the fly on the wall during the conversations that led to the creation of Manos, but he surrounded himself with a cast that had acting experience. Tom Neiman, the master did a ton of theater, a ton of theater. So he brings this theatricality to the master. Torgo, you know, John Reynolds, tons of theater. He brings the theatricality to what he's doing, you know? So sometimes you have these moments and then other times you have Hal Warren. Well, yeah, but now this is the way I'm going to take it because I know Monster Kid Raider is always positive. I'm going to take the fertilizer thing and think, in order for things to come, in order for crops to grow, flowers to bloom, you need <laughs> good fertilizer in the ground to help nurture the the flower, the fruit, the vegetables, so we can have good sustenance. So, yes, he's a fertilizer salesman, but with the proper placement of the fertilizer and with the proper crops, we could have great bounty wow um that's that's uh that's deep oh yeah i mean of course assuming the farmers are able to do their job um in this case i think there's a lot of problems with the farmers taking care of the crop which pretty much is the director the writer and the producer yeah it goes back to the same person you know <laughs> yeah and like i was telling beth too you know for listeners if you haven't listened to last week's episode that's what we did we talked about it with beth who had never seen the movie um, I am so curious. I, I know at one point there was kind of a copyright 
question regarding whether or not this movie is really in the public domain because supposedly the screenplay for the film had been registered, but then nothing really came of that whole story and it kind of just fizzled out and the guys who were talking about owning the rights went away. I would have loved to have read the original script because I still wonder how much of this movie got changed in the edit booth when they were doing the voiceover dialogue, when they were doing all the ADR, because that's all this movie is, is there was no sound yep. recording on on set at all. It was all done in post. So I'm curious as to whether or not the original screenplay was different in any way. Well, yeah, I've seen better. I've seen better um, sound record, ADR recording in kung fu movies from the 70s and 80s than here. Yeah. No, that's, yeah, that's true. Out. There's some Thanks. of the, the matching up of the dialogue and all that. It just it doesn't work. Now, I, I think John Revel Sorgo is an interesting thing for me. There are parts I really like what he's doing. There's parts there I, I just don't get. And I think I'm not blaming the actor. I'm blaming the editing and and the directing of what was filmed. Because, you know, take depending on what angles you're taking and what you're going to be able to see, I think sometimes there was poor shot selection for what they were trying to convey, which hurts the performance that we're, I'm able to see of, by John Reynolds, Torgo. Okay. So there, there, there are some things where I wish I would have been able to see, like when he was reaching for the bride and you see the hand doing all these things, but you never see that many shots of him. Like, why can't you have the shot where you have the bride's shoulder and you're, and you're seeing his face, you know, more often. It, it, it was always the hand reaching in, you know, doing these different things. And I think that's nice. I see the hand there, but we're, we're not seeing the bride's react. We're just seeing the shoulder, the hair and the fabric where if it would have been reversed, and we're able to see his facial expression, see what acting he was bringing to it. Uh, you know, then we, I, I think it might have helped a lot better. You know, like the, the conflict that may be going on in his face about, oh, he has, the master has all these and I don't type of thing. It, it could, I, I would have liked to have played it better where you, you have that shot going in that way instead of, to me, it was, it was, it was a directorial, obviously directorial choice. A lot of times they can only have time for so many shots because they're doing it low, quick, and fast. Low budget, quickly, you know, short amount of time and they have to do it quickly. And, mm -hmm. but I don't know, what do you think? I mean, there, there, I think, I think we could have saw more from John Reynolds' performance depending on shot selection. And I think it could have been because of timing, but also could be because you have an inexperienced director not knowing what shot to set up. Well, that and he's limited in terms of what he can actually capture on film because he's using the tail ends of cast-offs from other projects, from other editing studio, mm -hmm. editing houses and things like that. He's only got like 30 seconds of film that he can use. So he's got to get in there and shoot as quickly as he can and get what he wants in all of these shots. There's no opportunity unless you're watching the opening credits during these long driving scenes that don't really go anywhere. There's really not an opportunity to do a longer, more subtle performance. He's got to get in there, hit the basic beats and get out. And, you know, he's working with as much as he's working with actors from the theater, he's working with a lot of cast and crew that this is the first time they've done anything like this. The only time they've done something like this, and maybe they just didn't have the ability or the knowledge or whatever to pull it off. And I think you're right. I think Torgo could have been developed a little bit more. 
I don't think it's John Reynolds' fault. You know, his demons regarding whatever he might have been on or whatever aside, there were some things there to really make that character interesting. And it would have been great to spend more time developing that character on the other side of the camera because John Reynolds was doing everything he could to make that character something unique. Yeah. And so I'm not I, blaming John Reynolds at all. And I don't absolutely think, not. I know, I know a lot of people bring up the demons issue with um, drugs, but there's been also a lot of performers that have a lot of great work on film or songs and stuff like that that were um, partaking of uh, different different substances. Sure. <laughs> Those kind of things. And it, did, and it actually it, it did not impair their performance one way or the other or might enhance, who knows. Well, and you what and I will defend to get. Well, you and I will defend like Dracula versus Frankenstein with Lon Chaney, who, I mean, that was his last film, and he had succumbed at that point to pretty much everything he had been doing in his life with the drinking and everything, but he still gave it his all, and I still think it's a, a decent performance. So that that aside, you know, I don't think that really can take away from what like Chaney was doing in Dracula versus Frankenstein or what John Reynolds was doing with Torgo. Oh, I'll disagree with you right now. It was not a decent. It was a very good. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I, well, I've never seen that movie. Like I said, when I was a boy, and the thing that stayed with me for decades until I saw it again was was the main thing was Cheney's performance, especially with the dog, and that kind. Of, so that that was the thing that stayed with me for decades. So that's why I said it had to be good because look at the I, a terrible, unless it's extremely bad performance, and it might stay with me for decades, but this does not stay with me in a negative way. It stayed with me in a positive way. So that's why I say it's a good performance that stayed with me for decades. After. Sure. Okay. Yeah, I, I think was, Go ahead. I, I think what's also interesting with this movie is the music. Now, I've heard the... Um, the cue. I, I don't know what it started. I think when Torgo was walking the first time. The uh, how did how did it go? The um, <laughs> the little stinger. I'm, I'm not going to do it myself, but I'll drop it in right here. I think everybody knows exactly what we're talking about. So I thought that was going to actually be utilized more often every time we saw Torgo, and then eventually, like it did it for a while, then it stopped, and it. it I was just like, yeah. I, I thought that was going to be a constant thing. And um, so, so I was actually missing it because I was just like, okay. It, it's like Jaws. You know, you expect like certain sound effects, certain musical cues in Star Wars. You always have like you know, certain cues for certain characters show up. I figured that's Torgo's theme. Sure. But then it, they stopped doing it. I'm like, well, what did they stop it for? All they got to do is just keep sticking it in. I mean, they paid for it already. Unless they had a, they could only use it so many times in the movie, which I'd never, you know. Never heard about that. You can only use it four times. After that, it costs you more. No, I doubt that happened in this at all. So, you know, as much as I love film music and film scores, one, let the record show. Steve brought it up before I did, and two, I don't know much about the the background or the origin of the music and Monos the Hands of Fate. I'm not sure if it was sourced, if it was library music. If Hal Warren went into his studio one day and just plinked a bunch of stuff, just plinked a bunch of stuff out on a keyboard somewhere or something, I don't know. But uh, it's it's definitely unique. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's unique, and I mean, it, and this type of film, like, go for it, embrace it, and going from 
the long car footage, now, mm-hmm. which could have been stock footage. I don't know. Um, but if it was not stock footage, if they actually filmed it, then again, I go back to the director. Instead of filming these long car things, you should have stayed, you should have had it go for the acting, and then you would have still had the same length of movie, but you would allow the actors that extra, like a full minute maybe, or two minutes, to show their character, you know, show that stuff. I mean, and you were saying, yeah, they had 30-some-odd seconds of footage, but even if you had that, you could say, okay, you got 30 seconds, we're going to keep it focused on you, and then you switch the role or whatever, put the new, put the other footage in. Now we're going to do 30 more seconds, you know, go pick up or do an overlap so you can, when you edit, you can edit together and make it look pretty seamless and continue mm-hmm. it on. And so they could have, they could have made it work with that, with just thinking of it as a jigsaw puzzle like that. Okay. Just, I need you to do this part for this piece. And then I need you to do this part for this piece. And we put it together. We'll make this beautiful puzzle picture at okay. the end. So I, I understand that to me, that's a limitation they had, but I think I just came up with a simple solution where you could have come through that with no problem, still showing the performance and giving them more chance to breathe and still keeping it all working together. But I think again, we were limited with the, um, of the, the creativity of the, the director and producer and the editor, you know, but the editor only gets with the footage they're given. So it's not like, they, you know, if they're not, they don't have those shots, they don't have those shots. Right. But no, overall, overall, I, I, it wasn't, it was not a bad experience. I was not, I did not feel like I was, I was tortured, pained, maimed or anything like that from it. Uh, I also don't feel like I was rewarded for it. I mean, there, it's, 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 it's a, it's a it's a bad movie, but it's got good bone, good structure. If you get okay. what I'm saying, so it, 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 I mean, I, I want to get, I don't want to, I can't, I, I'm good faith cannot recommend people watch the movie because it really depends on your taste of movie. If you like these type of movies, these low budget, independent movies made with interesting talent, you know, at the at the higher level, but with so the people coming up there and doing their best to make it work, then yeah, you'll like this movie and you, know, you should enjoy it. But I mean, it's, again, it, it takes a while to get going. There are some performances that you can gravitate to and enjoy. And there's some things there that they keep doing over and over again, like the, the couple in the car always making out, which went on for the longest time. There, there must be nothing at all to do in this town and this road must be forever. <laughs> every time they leave the sheriff there's nothing down that road they want to when the sheriff tells them to go on they all they go that same direction i'm like well there's nothing down that road eventually you're going to get to that same spot those people did true true we did keep cutting back to those guys structurally i don't know may- maybe again i wonder about the script and i wonder about how many things had to be done on the fly uh like i was talking about with beth you know the woman in the car making out and broke her leg so she couldn't like get out and do anything other than sit in a car and make out with somebody. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the deal was, but we ended up with the movie we ended up with <laughs> for better or worse. And I, I still enjoy you, it. I, I still dig it, man. I have to ask you, Ethan. I know you and I are both animal lovers. You know what happens to one of those dogs? I know it bothers me. Makes me sad. 
as soon as I saw that dog in the first shot, it's like, oh, this dog ain't going to make it for long. Because I knew what type of movie I was going in for. I was like, oh, this, this dog ain't going to make it. Yeah, I was disappointed. And then the guy walking in, in the woods, I mean, not in the woods, but into the desert or whatever, whipped the dog without a shovel or anything. Well, I was like, what are you going to do? Just find the hole and then there. I don't know. You know, what the guy was thinking. I'll walk out in the darkness with the dog. Yeah. Yeah. Poor Pepe. Poor Pepe. And uh, and the rest of the family, you know, uh, Margaret, Diane, Mary, and Debbie, played by Jackie, they did they, they did fine work. I mean, you know, the child actress, you know, first movie, going into it and that kind of stuff, being told to do that. I mean, it, it was not, there was nothing really like negative about it, positive about it. It was solid. And I thought that Margaret was solid. Yeah, I, I think they did okay. I think some of their performance is hindered by the fact that it's not their dialogue. The the dialogue is being recorded by somebody else, right? And that's that's unfortunate. I thought Jackie's dialogue was the Debbie's dialogue was done by Jackie. The, I'm sorry. Was wasn't Debbie's dialogue done by Jackie? No, it was not. Uh, so if you read things like Monos, growing up Monos, that sort of thing, and you talk to Jackie, the story is. She's sitting in the theater and nobody told her her voice would be done by somebody else. So as a little kid, this other voice is coming out of her mouth and it was quite upsetting. Oh, yeah. There's a lot. I mean, who knows? It's hard to say. I mean, I know there are countries that do it this way all the time, or at least they did in the past. You know, Italy and Spain, where they, they, would, they would do productions, but they would never have any audio. And also in um, Hong Kong, where they would never do any audio. And they would just dub it in later on for various reasons. Yeah. So, so like the Shaw brothers, people from all these different countries and also yeah, the yeah. ones they're trying to do the special effects and they're at spots where the audio would be very problematic. I understand that perfectly, you know, and, but usually they still get the same performers to redo the dialogue or at least try to. But in this case, it's sad because we'll never know what the actor was trying to portray, especially when you have theater actors in most of it. You're losing a lot of the, um, that could have made the performances better and said you're going to people that don't really know what the character that the actor is, the actor is trying to have the character portray read the lines and they have their own interpretation and that can lead to why things don't mesh so well yeah exactly the ADR being done so, by non like not be done by the not not that performance and people have heard me talk about how much I love things like spaghetti westerns and all that. And a lot of the Euro westerns were shot that way. Uh, you mentioned the Kung Fu movies uh, from Hong Kong and, you know, the Shaw Brothers productions and things like that. They did the same thing. Uh, the reasons were a little different. With the Euro westerns, it's like, ah, we're going to ship this all over the world. We're going to do the dialogue specific to where we're sending it. The Kung Fu movies, a lot of times they were shot in studios in. Uh, an area that was not sound controlled, so they weren't able to get clean audio to begin with. So it was done after the fact a lot of times. So it's, you know, for whatever reason, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And there's a lot of models where it does. I, I love models, but there's a lot of models where things just don't work. And and I know that. I still love it. I love it straight. I, I really enjoy this movie. I tried to explore it a little bit and explain it a little bit last week, and I'm still working out my thoughts on it. And... You know, I just, there's something about Monos that draws me in. But you, you brought that up last week's episode, but I didn't really hear you explain it. 
how you said this movie is so personal to you, how much you love it. I want to ask you that directly. What? Why is this movie so personal to you? And you I mean, but you seem to still be struggling with that answer. You know, and I started talking about this last week with Beth, that even though I know that this is not how movies work, once the movie's done, unless your name's George Lucas, the movie's done, right? It goes out into the theaters, it goes on to whatever media, and you're done. It doesn't change. It never changes. But there's something about Manos that when I'm watching it, I'm still wanting it to be better. I'm still rooting for it the entire time. It's an underdog thing. Maybe I'm kind of voting for the underdog here, knowing full well that these people probably did not have any business making a movie in the end. I'm still watching it, hoping for a better outcome, not for the characters, not for the story, but for the film itself. It speaks to me as somebody who thought he was going to be a filmmaker when he grew up. It speaks to me as somebody who's really into that DIY aesthetic. Uh, I love regional filmmaking and regional films from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. It, it, it speaks to me on a creative level. And I think as a creative person, it, it really kind of touches something inside me. It, it makes me feel like, oh, well, I could have done that. It makes me feel like I have done that. It makes me feel like that these guys, if they tried just a little bit harder, they could have done it better. So there's just something about it where I'm rooting for the movie the entire time. Knowing full well it's not going to change the outcome because that's not how movies work. I know this, but I, I just wanted to succeed and, and I'm cheering for the underdog. So maybe that's part of it. And, and I understand what you're saying. But there, this kind of reminds me of the movie I did with Dominique on your show. Um, mm-hmm. the, ghost, the Ghost of Hanley House where there's, there's, there's bones there and a structure where it could have been a very good movie. And sometimes and, and I know Dominique says it's already a very good movie because it speaks to the inner doff of her um, mm. and that kind of stuff. But it's just, sometimes these movies, these type of movies can sometimes make me mad, mad because I'm like, you had this, this, this premise, you had this idea, you had this thing. If it only would have been executed better, you know, it could have worked out really well. Now, having said that, let's say they did execute this movie better. Let's say they moved it up. That's where it was a great movie, but it was, solid and let's say it still did no business well nobody would know about it because it ended up coming out the way it was and then because of rip tracks or whatever they you know whatever i don't listen i don't watch those things but the, the, they did that thing with it where they made fun of it it ends up becoming this movie that's more well known so mm-hmm. i look at it i'm tempered my thoughts about this could have been a better movie with the fact that hey it's more well known now than it ever would have been if it would have been like if it would if it would have been done a little bit better, then it wouldn't be known at all. You know, it'd be it would be more of an afterthought. But because of the way it was done, it ended up being this thing where a lot of people know about the name of the movie, even whether they've seen it or not. You say Manos, they know, Oh, I know what you're talking about. Manos. But exactly. don't call it Manos. Then you're like, No, it's Manos. <laughs> well, there's a good way to segue into the second film that we're talking about here. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Because that shtick is used in Manos, The Rise of Torgo, which I had heard about this movie, and then it just fell, it quickly fell off my radar. So when you brought it up about talking about this movie, it it caught my attention. It's like, wait a minute. So I went and I watched it, and I watched it off Amazon. 
That's what I did too. I paid my I paid my two dollars and eleven cents. It was a dollar ninety nine to rent plus my state tax of two dollars and eleven cents that I'll never ever see again. Yeah. So Oh boy. Um how to talk uh, about uh, this let, one. I, I know how to start us off with this one, Derek. Okay. Derek contacted me about doing a podcast. I said, hey, let's do Manos, the Rise of Torgo. Derek said, yes, and now we're talking about it. Oh, boy. Right? Right? It just comes out of nowhere. There's one girl singing her goat love song, and then um, Torgo singing multiple times. <laughs> you know? That's... Oh, boy. Okay. I do have something I really love about this movie. Oh, okay, I'm trying to find my end, so go ahead. <laughs> um, my favorite two people in this movie, by far, and the, and the one I, I loved every time they were on there, was the two grandmas. The synchronized grandma, responding, doing everything. Um, and they were very close, considering the budget they probably had and, and stuff like that. They, those two ladies did a very good job of saying pretty much in sync most of the time. You probably, they probably only ever had one take to do these things i loved it every time the grandmoms are in the movie every time i saw him i was like oh it's the grand he's going to grandmom's house and grandmom was looking where's tour girl where's tour girl where's tour girl the grandmoms are like looking and doing stuff and then they would eye certain things and do certain things together i love the grandma what did you think about the grandma carol thacker and patty grable so i thought they were cool i thought they were an odd choice uh, I think there's a lot about this movie that I thought was an odd choice. Um, but they were enjoyable and creepy, and I liked them a lot. Oh, I definitely agree with you. A lot of odd choices, but they were they were a strength of the movie. Yeah, yeah. So here's the thing, and I talk about this on MKR a lot. There's no wrong way to enjoy a movie, Right. Sure, if you're in a movie theater and you're making fun of a movie while it's being shown or whatever, interrupting somebody else's enjoyment, th that's the wrong way. But if you like to watch these movies that we talk about on Monster Kid Radio or Hammerama or any of these other podcasts, you know, B-Movie Cast or the Monster Kid Movie Club, any of that stuff, the Classic Horrors Film Club, and, and you like to watch them through the filter of Mystery Science Theater 3000 or another riff, whatever... Good on you. If you enjoy it, I'm happy for you. I really am. Where I struggle a little bit, though, is that when somebody brings up a movie like this, like Monos, or like I said, I was showing Beth the Screaming Skull last night, or a lot of these low-budget movies, and we just kind of make fun of them because they're dated or campy or corny or whatever, I, I don't think that's why these movies were made to begin with. I, I, I struggle a little bit when somebody makes fun of the crawling eye or even the creeping unknown or anything like that because mm -hmm. nobody sits down intentionally to make a bad movie or a corny movie or whatever, at least not back then. Now when people remake these movies or make these movies, make movies in the theme of or the, the style of these movies, they intentionally make them silly and goofy and, and kind of poke fun at it and whatever 
Mim doesn't do that. I mean, he started out doing that a little bit. If you watch Mim's earlier movies, they are intentionally kind of poking fun at and making fun of these films with jokes and all that. But as his career and his filmography progresses, he gets away from that and he's just telling stories in that style and that's that. I think he really kind of peaked around like Attack of the Moon Zombies and Giant Spider and that's that's kind of where he kind of found that groove. Josh Kennedy doesn't do this. Right? Josh Kennedy doesn't make movies in this style to make fun of them. I feel like with Manos, The Rise of Torgo, the filmmakers decided to make fun of Manos a little bit and didn't treat the material as if somebody was genuinely trying to tell a story. They were trying to poke fun at it. And I struggled a little bit with it. I'll be completely honest. The random singing, the the things that were supposed to be funny, I, I really struggled. Oh God. Yeah. I, I struggled. I struggled throughout this movie and it was just, I was just like, really, this is, this is what you're doing. It's David Roy, David Roy, the writer, director, David Roy. You are not somebody I want to see other movies from because of this movie. I mean, it was just, I, Ooh, I was, okay. Um, because it was just, it was just poorly executed, poorly done. It was just, it was just, she's trying to make fun of something and just retreading these different grounds. And some of it, well, I should say, a lot of it wasn't funny. That's why I said the grandmoms are the best part. And there, there were some things that were, oh, I was okay with, but it could have been, I was just worn down by the, the 90 minute running time. <laughs> Yeah, I think if you're doing a Monos film that runs longer than the original Monos, you've really got to be doing something special. No, I, some I the, did like Danny McCarty as the mask. I was going to say some of the performances job. weren't bad. Yeah. Danny McCarty Jackie, was an awful. And Jackie uh, was, was, was Monos, and... Uh, you know, it was by was not was not in the movie for long, and you could tell it's like green screened in. Uh, sure, but Danny McCarty, I thought did solid. I thought Elizabeth Redpath was okay as Mama, but it was a lot of it was the scripting. It was just the script was just ugh. Yeah, it it left it left me cold. I respect for them for finishing a movie. Respect to them for finishing a feature-length film and getting it distributed. I mean, it's on Amazon. I know Amazon doesn't really pay their indie filmmakers a lot of money, but, you know, he made a quarter or two off you and me on this, and uh, I'm happy to throw a quarter or two their way that way. But there there was a lot of things that just felt like misfires and stylistic choices that didn't seem to fit. As much as I thought the grandmas were cool, stylistically, I don't think they really fit in the Manos lore. Uh, the flashbacks to how Torgo was conceived seemed like an odd choice. The way they were kind of framed, literally framed, seemed like an odd choice to me. Uh, so I don't know. I, I just, I'm glad they did something and good for them. Some of the performances were solid. Danny McCarty as the master, like you said, no, he's no patch on the original. And his mustache is clearly fake. But overall, he wasn't awful. I liked the sheriff. It was terrible. You know, like Lance Henry and the mama was great. The guy who played Torgo, I, I don't know if he really had the charisma John Reynolds had. It the final guy well, who played Torgo, that is. I, they had many yeah. people playing Torgo through his life. So You're talking about Matt Rogers, which is, I don't know if you did this, but when you're watching the listeners on Amazon Prime, 
and you click on the cat. 35 people. I was like, 35 people? I knew right away there was, was going to be a problem. But it's, it's a huge cast for a, a small independent film. And you, you look at Matt, you look at Torgo, the adult Torgo, and it has a picture of Matt Rogers. That Matt Rogers picture does not match in any way, shape, or form, except that they're the same skin color as the Matt Rogers that was in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know. I it left me cold. I I just I wish him the best, you know. And if he does continue to make film, and he did continue to make movies, apparently, I wish him the best. And and I hope something better comes along for him. Um, it just it left me cold. I feel weird because I try not to talk too badly about movies here on the show, right? I try to keep things pretty positive. This one just didn't do it for me. I think they took the lessons, the wrong lessons from Monos to try to make this prequel. Yeah, I, I, I noticed a favorite people miss about those classic movies, or not so classic, you know, from the 50s and 60s and so on, where people are like, oh, this is so campy or, 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 or cheesy or whatever. And the thing is, when they were making those movies, they played it straight. Yeah. Some people might look at it as cheesy, but the actors, the director, the writers, they're all playing it straight. Like I love the giant claw. I absolutely love it. Sure. And and the only thing the only thing that's kind of that people get like, oh, this is you know funny, whatever, is because they see the giant claw. Mm-hmm. I mean, the rest of it is solidly acted, solidly done. When when filmmakers try to intentionally do a comedic spoof, well, now you're you're taking a chance, and the chances are, you know, yes, you can hit a group because you know, oh, they're going to love it because it's going to be funny and stuff like that. And, and people have done this with old TV shows, you know, like from the seventies when they were doing that for a number for a while there, the seventies and eighties when they were rebooting them, they were like, Oh, we're going to make them funny instead of playing it straight. Like they did in the TV show because, you know, that's what we're doing. And, and some of them worked, a lot of them didn't. And this is sure. one that followed that same motif. It's like, Oh, we're going to take it. It was played straight before we're going to, everybody laughs at it. Now we're going to make it so everybody can laugh. A lot of the jokes didn't land, and then you offend the original audience that actually enjoyed the movie because they're going to watch this like like you did and I did, and you're just going to be like, there's nothing here for me as a, a viewer. Now, other people, you might love this movie. I mean, it's just, you know, there are things in there, like I said, that I did enjoy, but the main thing is, is the rise of Torgo and the way Torgo is brought up and does, does it would not seem to me to be when I watch Manos, the hands of fate as the, 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 the way they portray Torgo in this movie does not match the backstory I would have had for that character, you know, going into from that movie. Like, cause you always, when you think about movies, sometimes you fill in, Oh, they probably were like this and this before that or whatever you, you guess. These are none of my guesses right here that you, his mom have raised them by eating tons of chicken and all this other stuff. You know, it's just, and and the mom is just total crazy, you know. Yeah. And, so it ends up a fight with crazy mama versus Manos at the end, and and, and the wives. Um, and, and dang, is she a good shot? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely something at the core of Manos that I feel like the rise of Torgo missed. I, am I curious about Torgo? I mean, we I think we kind of talked about that a little bit when we were talking about the original film. There were some things that the original film 
did not do that could have made Torgo even more interesting or compelling. I think the original film does Torgo, the character, a disservice. There's more there. We didn't get that in the prequel about the rise of Torgo. We got a kid that was a mama's boy who didn't have a father growing up. Um, who, you know, doesn't have a lot of friends and falls into this cult of Manos. And okay, now he's under the master. I mean, there's really nothing there. Plus, we never really talk about his legs. And <laughs> I mean, that's a big part of the, the lore of Torgo, right? It's like, what's up with those legs, dude? So, yeah. I thought they explained that because they did a thing where they had to give new pants and they never showed. Yeah, but it's still. I was waiting for the reveal. I would, that was the one thing I was waiting for. for the, okay, let's see what happens. Because like, so they said they're going to do this transformation spell. So no, none of the wives will ever want him. They do the spell, the wives last. And we don't really see what the legs become. And I'm like, you're killing me. The one thing left and you don't deliver a good image or, or any image really, of what he, and the actor, because of his physicality, was not able to do the walk like you would expect to see, you know, like, you know, like, like the John Reynolds did, that did, you know, where you're able to see that walk, that movement, and I know he had the braces on or whatever, but this actor was just, I guess they didn't give him the braces, or maybe he couldn't put them on, I don't know, but it was just like, I was expecting to see that just wasn't there. He did struggle to get up from a laying down position, but he didn't walk the way I was expecting to see that, that classic um, movement. Yeah, exactly. So I don't, I don't know if really have much else to say about the movie except uh, I would never recommend this movie to anybody. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't. I don't want to get too down on, on I mean, the film. On, on MK. Just that's not what we do, but. Yeah, it's if you're looking to have a full Monos experience, I don't know if this one would be quote unquote required viewing. However, the other film in the the triptych of movies we're talking about here today, Monos Returns, I'm a huge fan of. And I think this one oh, I love this. for the most part on the promises of the original film as well as its own promises that it makes. This is the best of the list. This one here. I really enjoyed. I was watching this one. It's like, oh, I can watch this one again right now if I wanted to. I mean, I really enjoyed um, Manos Return. You know, it was just it was just so solid, so well done compared to, especially compared to the other two. And um, and, and listeners, to give you an order, I watched. Them. I didn't watch. Them. I watched Manos to Hand in the Face. Then I watched Manos Return because it's on Tubi also, if I remember. And mm-hmm. I did Rise of Torgo last. So Same. I should Same. have done this one last, but this, this one, this one is like, oh, you feel so good after watching it. You're like, okay, they did a lot of things nice here, including having the return of the master, the real master. Right. So for I'm sure most people who are into Manos know this. Tom Naiman, who plays the master, is the real life father of Jackie, who played Debbie in the original as well. Uh, so to have... You've got Jackie re- taking the role back again as Debbie. You've got the master back. You've got Maggie. You've got Diane, well, now Adelson in this film, but Diane Mari comes back as the mother. You've got the son of the original sheriff from the original film in here as well. So you've got 
all these thematic connections that go beyond a cameo, which is kind of, no offense to her, what she was in The Rise of Torgo, right? That's what Jackie was in The Rise of Torgo, basically a cameo. You actually have her and all these other pieces from the original coming together in a movie that does play it straight. And I love Diane's performance of Maggie in this film. So good. It was wonderful. I mean, I was watching it today. Wow. I mean, I was was blown away. You could tell she was so much better than she was in the first film. And it was just like, you know, she was able to play crazy and and or is it raw and act up because you wonder like is she just is, is she crazy is she not so crazy is it an act is she both is that she have hot moments of lucidity uh I, I really like that and i like the whole thing about they really played up learning about the place yes and and that i would like to learn more about like what, what is this place because they had a lot of people doing cameos including one person who i interviewed in the past, George Stover, yeah, one of the characters there, and they, they did his filming was done in Baltimore, and they put it into the film. Um, so I was just like, because I knew George Stover was in this when I talked to him when I interviewed him prior, and I was like, oh, this would be cool. Let me look for George in there, and it's like, oh, it's not just one part. He's in there for a few. He's in there for a few different parts. Um, I don't know whether they were like people that have visited before, and they are now spirits of the place. Or they're just trapped in different departments because it's hard to say because they have their their experiences, which we learn from seeing Maggie's perspective, are different than what's happening in the realm that most of the characters are in. And I, I thought that was well done. It could have been played up even more. And if they ever do a sequel, I would love to see the place really examined. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that they, they kind of fleshed some of it out, but they still left enough mystery there. I like that we had the other characters. We even have kind of an explanation as to why Torgo is still running around doing stuff. And this Torgo seemed to hit more of the Torgo marks than the other Torgo. Uh, we even had the reason, kind of kind of an explanation as to why he's there. You know, we are permanent. None of us can leave this place. And all of that is really kind of played up here. Honest Returns was directed by Tanya Atomic. Uh, Joe Sherlock was the cinematographer on the project as well. So it was produced up here in the Pacific Northwest. And I, I don't know. It's just, it, it seems to have a lot more heart. It really seems to kind of get it and have its heart in, in the right place, you know? Yeah. And they did appropriate homages to the, the first film. Um where, you know, they weren't doing a campy, they were just doing it, you know, you, you had the couple that were kissing in the car, you had the sheriff, you know, uh, you, you had some of the, those, those tropes, but they, unlike the prior film we talked about, they were done, I think, appropriately or better than in the first film. Uh, because, again, I think they had, you know, it's a lot different when you're shooting things digitally, too. You don't have to worry about how much film you have. And I'm, I'm assuming this was done digitally. I don't know. It could have been done on real film. Yeah, it was digitally. It was digital. Yeah. And that's the advantage of digital is that you don't have to worry about, oh, we only had 32 seconds or whatever. Um, they can follow up before. And Steven Shield, this Torgo, was, was doing a very good job of channeling the earlier Torgo. I thought, you know, because he had the braces on, he had the movement. And I like how it, this is what, this is, could it be one of the other reasons I had a problem with Rise of Torgo because I saw him in this order. 
I was under the impression that Torgo could not be killed in the play. Like they, like it was almost like one of those things where you had um, in the House of Mystery and the House of um, Secrets in DC Comics, where you had Cain and Abel, and um, um, Cain would keep killing Abel, but Abel kept coming back because it was just it's just a thing, you know. It's like oh, he kills you, but he keeps coming back. And I thought it was that, was that same principle of Torgo. Like, they do these things to him, but they start off the movie with, I think, uh, stabbing him or something. Whatever. They like they say, we're going to kill him. And then, yes, there he is again. I'm thinking, that's okay. Torgo immortal. And, I, and that's why I started to wonder. I, I was really wanting to see this backstory, and I thought it was going to be more of a um, fantastical, supernatural backstory to it. That's it. So that could be a reason why I was, I was so negative on that, uh, that, that middle movie prequel. And that could just be the baggage I was bringing in. So I'm trying to, you know, throw some positive to that way that could be, it could be my experience because of what I was expecting. Uh, but what did you think? I mean, did you think that Torgo could be killed from what you saw from this film? From this film? No. Now, we see him run off into the dark in the original movie, and that's that. And I think we're just meant to assume that, that he's done. You know, where Torgo's going to go out and die, and that's that. But this one really kind of changed that up a little bit. But by expanding in the lore in that way, it seemed to make sense. Yeah, and I like how they kept his hand missing from the first film. Yes. Because that was cut off. He does, it proves he can't regenerate a whole appendage back. Um, so he's not like Deadpool. Right. And... I've, there, there are things I really enjoyed about that, and I enjoyed a lot of these newer characters that came in to the movie, and and they seemed to be played better. Now the scripting wasn't always perfect with them, but it was just there that they're exploring the place and learning different things about it. I thought that was done well, also. I, I mean, overall, I really I really enjoyed this movie. I think if anybody enjoys enjoys Manos to Hand the Fate, you must see. Mono's return. You know, back in the day when this was in production and they did their fundraising campaign, I, I was part of it. I own a Mono's Returns t-shirt. I have a Mono's Returns lapel button. You know, I, I was there. I was part of it. And I was very happy to be involved with in a small, tiny way in getting this movie produced because I think it really does deliver uh, it is the last time we see Tom Neiman. He unfortunately passed away uh, either during the production or shortly thereafter. The movie is dedicated to him. Uh, and, you know, he does what he needs to do to appear in the movie the way that he does. He's not as active in the movie as he was in the original film, but his presence is still there. Um, Jackie just knocks it out of the park. She does fantastic. And Brian Jennings is the sheriff. I don't know if the first time I saw this, I, without knowing, if I would have known that that was the son of the original guy. I feel like he looks and sounds just like his dad. <laughs> I would have thought that's the I, guy. Somehow he's now aged a bit, you know? Oh, I agree with you. I didn't know at all either. I mean, I, so you're bringing it up. I had a suspicion, you know, because the way he was built, mm -hmm. I didn't look at all in the background detail, because I knew I was going to be talking to you and, and you know, you're, you're the expert. Compared oh. to me, on this and this, this, this type of film, or, or just, just, just these particular two films, 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, I didn't see your name in the credits. I was looking at it, I saw these names, I was like, okay, okay, where, where's, where's Derek Insult? Where's Derek Insult? Oh, there he is. <laughs> <laughs> so I did, so yes, it, you being in the credit thing, I did actually make sure I watched that particular part. <laughs> well, and how cool for you too to be watching this and then to have a guy who's kind of sort of local to you, or at least used to be local to you. I don't know if he's still out there or not. I guess he is. George Stover, you know, he's being a poor guy, guy appearing in this. <laughs> well, he is um, Baltimore's king of B-movie. You know, so yeah. he's, he's, he's talking about John Waters films and tons of other stuff. He was in um, The Alien Factor. Yep. Uh, and, and those kind of things, which, there's so many good things that he's done. And, and this is a guy who was, I think he worked for, he worked a normal nine to five job and did this on the side. And then you never know where things are going to go. And that's what I love about it. It, it kind of reminds what he did, uh, similar to what you've done and I've done, where you have a normal job or normal other things going on. And you start a podcast and then you're just like, oh, you know, we'll just and see how things go. And, it, it, and you just have to, you have that creative outlet which could lead to other things. And I think, you know, that's similar to what he did. And now, of course, you know, he retired from his job and he does these acting gigs and goes up to different things. And um, you just got to, you just got to enjoy it that he's able to have that fun and, and able to do those different um, um, opportunities. So go into the archives for the Diecast Movie Podcast. Episode 93 is uh, where George Stover appears uh, on that podcast in an interview. I know that, um, Mr. Stover has appeared in a number of Joe Sherlock's productions as well, and he's a big fan of his work too, so he tries to get him in his stuff as well. Uh, so it's just kind of cool to see some other B-movie, I'm going to say Legends, appearing in this Monos follow-up. Uh, how cool is that? Oh, I agree. And and I, I remember bringing it up to him during the interview, and he said, oh, I did all my work over here, but he said it was just great to be part of and, and to do it. Uh, it takes the one thing about things being done digitally is that you're able, and if you have the green screen capability, you're able to put people in from other areas of the world and, and save some the travel cost. So if they're doing a cameo like he was, um, it, that's a, it's a very inexpensive way to do it. Now, the negative of that is you're not having an interaction with the main actors or other actors that get that help with your performance. So it depends what you're looking for them to do. But it does help for a low-budget film to get a name or extra names attached to the movie and save on the sense of having to travel them, put them up in a hotel, and all the other stuff. And, and I, I really enjoy that how technology has improved in that aspect. Definitely, um, I think when I first saw this, I wasn't one hundred percent sure that he was not on set, knowing that he had worked with Joe before. Uh, I didn't. So the first time I saw it, I wasn't really 100% like, oh, wait a minute. He's not really there, but for what he's doing, it works. And again, technology makes that possible. Uh, I'm trying to imagine what Hal Warren would have done with today's technology with Monos. I think the movie could have been a lot better if he had better tech. Well, I think there would have been a couple of things. One, he wouldn't have had to worry about the um, time, how much film he had. You yeah, could have did true. multiple shots, depending on what his technology, what kind of cameras are used to consider as low budget. I mean, nowadays you can just literally use your phone, you get a, a gimbal, and you can take the shots and do it that way. 
And I've, I've known people that have done feature-length films that have played in the theaters and have done really well. Ceremony said we did it 100%. I shouldn't 100%, but virtually everything was done by their phone except maybe some special effects shots. Um, you know, those kind of things. So it, and, and they look great. You would never notice. So depending on the, the hands of the, the people that are using the technology, yes, it can be very well done. Or at least worse, it would be maybe like a YouTube video person doing their thing. And there's a lot of people that have done YouTube videos that look really good. And gimbals are very expensive. Sure. For sure. For sure. Well, I think well, this is... you to use... I'm, I think, I think, Derek, we should give you a gimbal with your phone and a little little microphone thing, and then send the things you loose in the public, and you come out with you come out with a great footage, and then next thing we know, Derek M. Cook filmed me. It's it's in the works. I'm just going to say that, okay? It's in the works. So. Now, now I'm going to be like now I'm going to be like I'm Sam Kennison and just go do it, do it. <laughs> <laughs> No, there there are things in the works. I I don't know if uh, anything I end up doing will uh, have the staying power of Monos. Uh, it won't be as permanent as Monos, but uh, yeah, I am trying to slowly get the Monster Kid radio machine back up and running, uh, which does mean reaching out to people and getting interviews and that sort of thing. So I'm I'm trying, I'm trying. So <laughs> we'll we'll see what happens with getting other interviews done and getting other projects off the ground, that sort of thing. Uh, doing things like visiting Monos, something that I do truly love, has made it a lot easier. And doing it with people that have helped out Monster Kid Radio, that are important to Monster Kid Radio, the people that I like spending time with, like you, Steve, has definitely made getting this Monster Kid Radio machine back up and running a lot easier. So I want to thank you for that. Uh, thank you for talking about Monos with me <laughs> for as long uh, as we have here. I don't know. We've been going for a while now. Um, so well, we're talking about three different films. We are talking about three different films, but, you know, it's still a lot. And uh, I appreciate your patience. Uh, and, and thank you for humoring me. And, and, you know, let's get into the nitty gritty of why we love this stuff. And, you know, the, the heart behind things like Monos Returns and Monos the Hands of Fate really kind of kept us going even though we kind of had a prequel we weren't really a big fan of. So I, I appreciate you taking the time, man. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And as as Meatloaf said, two out of three ain't bad. Oh, wow. All right. All right. Hey, I, I might as well go. I mean, great song, great music reference, great singer. And, of course, Rocky Horror Picture Show has Monster Kid Radio cred. Well, at I least you didn't sing it this time. Okay. No, no. I only did that for those parts where, oh, trust me. I, I, actually, I don't think I sing as bad as um, the guy playing Torgo did in that. And I think I was pretty much on par. Okay. Well, the... <laughs> nah, I'm joking. I'm joking. He, he sings much better than I do. But it's just, I I highly recommend Mono's Return. I think that's, that's something everybody should see. But in order to enjoy it the most, you have to watch Mono's The Hands of Fate. And I think, yeah. and that, like I said before, it, it's going to, it's going to depend on your what you like as listeners, that kind of thing. So I, I would say, I would say, watch that one. I mean, you should see it at least once, just just to know what the world everybody's talking about. In order to be able to speak intelligently about it, whether you like it or don't like it, you should see the movie. I hate it when people say they did not like something and they never saw. It. Like this movie's crap. What'd you see? The trailer? 
other people think. Well, you didn't see the movie. You really don't know whether it was good or bad, or it has so-and-so in it, so it must be bad, or so-and-so directed. I'm like, you don't know. Watch the movie. Then you can talk intelligently about it one way or the other. And I think if you watch that one, definitely watch Bono's Returns. They're free on Tubi. You get little ads in there, and then you know, and you'll you'll be able to make your own decision. And I think I think it's definitely worth it when you get to the second film. The second film makes everything shine and adds and it makes it the first film, in my mind, feel better. You know, having if, if I would have saw the first one, I might have not been as positive, but having seen the, the, the sequel, Thanos Returns, it really made me feel good. And I saw them both back to back dates. So it was it was just like, oh this is, and it makes you it makes you look back at the first film in a happy way, in a good way. I think that's, that's what a sequel should do. It should make you enjoy the first film even more if it's done properly. And this sequel exceeds in doing that very, very well. And I want to thank you again for letting me talk about these films. And thanks again for letting me help you out. And anytime you need the help, just let me know. Just, just light up the fires and, and Rohan will come again. I will come. <laughs> I don't think anybody has ever mentioned in the same podcast, in the same set of paragraphs, Manos and Lord of the Rings. There, there's a, there's a mix. With meatloaf, bro. Now I'm seeing Manos as you know the master is Gandalf, and I, I think we probably ought to wrap this up before my brain starts to break down a little bit there. But Steve, where can people find you? Steve Sullivan will write a book on it, and he'll be out there. You know, it'll be the Lord of the Rings with, with Manos in the current, instead in the sixties. <laughs> oh man where can people find you steve they can find me in reisterstown maryland no i'm just they can look up the diecast movie podcast and any podcasters our home is spotify um so if you go to spotify and type in diecast movie podcast it'll pop up we've done over 160 episodes about 45 percent of them are interviews 55 percent movie discussions like I said, we did a James Well retrospective series where we talked about a lot of his movies, not just the genre films that you talk about, but the, the full body, trying try to get more into the body of work that we were able to find readily available. Mm-hmm. Um, we also are the home of Hammerama, that's the subsidiary series of Diecast Movie Podcast. And we've got our 15th episode coming out again, Twins of Evil with Judy Matheson. So um, I, I'm, Alistair and I were beyond the moon enjoying talking with her and her interview will be coming out right before that. So you'll be able to hear her talk in detail, more detail about her career um, and why she picked the scene she did for twins of evil, which once you hear about it, obviously it's a no brainer of uh, everybody would have picked that same scene for the same reason she did. And if you're wondering what those reasons are, it's just called a tease. <laughs> <laughs> and if you like Frank Dello Strito, he's been, his episodes coming out where he, we talk about the classic zombies. Yes voodoo zombies and we particularly focus on white zombie and i walk with a zombie and we talk about his new book that'll be coming out patron saints of the living dead where he goes into um some historical fiction type thing with those movies and you'll learn more about it there and we do things besides the classic monster movie things we hit all genres and we've had Derek on the show um before with black submarine and <laughs> things like that so Derek. You're going to be coming on the show again. Also, also Derek and I did Conan the Destroyer. Mm-hmm. A couple episodes of Derek on there, and we'll be rolling the dice again. And once Derek gets less busy getting his 
things all moving. We'll get him back on the show, making a movie. I'm sure we'll be excited and fun, and people will be like, oh, Eric likes other movies besides Plastic Monster. Yes, he's a well-rounded person. I'm something. You are amazing. You do a great show. Um, congratulations to you and Beth again for Team Depth, as you like to go by. You know, I'm, I'm Hope you guys have multiple decades of happiness and enjoyment and have that fun. Enjoy yourselves, you young young little couple, you. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> well, this young man here has been sitting too long in one position, so I need to wrap this up so I can stand up and kind of loosen up these joints a little bit. Otherwise, I'll be walking all day like Torgo. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Thank you for listening. Thanks for being here. Thanks for taking the journey with us as we went through Manos, the Hands of Fate, Manos, the Rise of Torgo, and Manos Returns. And as Steve said, two out of three ain't bad, but again, I'm not going to get too negative. I just am glad I had a chance to watch Manos, the Rise of Torgo, and to expose Steve to Manos, the Hands of Fate, and just kind of spreading the word uh, of this cult movie that really has no right to exist, but I'm so glad that it does. And so glad that you're here for the journey as well. Thank you for listening. Now, if you are interested in anything you've heard about here on Monster Kid Radio this week, make sure you go to our website at monsterkidradio.net where you can find links to everything that you heard about here on the show in the show notes. Also over on our website, you're going to find our contact information. You can shoot me an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 360 360- Five two four two four eight four, or you can put together an audio file and email it to me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. However you want to interact with the show, whether it's that way or on Facebook or on Twitter or on Discord or on Reddit, I welcome you. And we'd love to hear what you think about all things Monos or all things Monster Kid Radio or anything you've heard about on a previous episode of MKR. We'd love to talk about it with you here on the show. We are still in Monos mode, which means next week we've got even more Monos the Hands of Fate content and fingers and tentacles crossed. If everything goes well, I have got a recording scheduled with somebody who was in the original Monos the Hands of Fate. You heard Steve talk about her earlier because he's going to have her on his show as well. But we are super excited to have Jackie Naaman Jones on the show next week. I'm set to record with her on Sunday. So we're going to record on Sunday. I'm going to edit the episode. And next week, Jackie's back on Monster Kid Radio. She's been on the show at least twice before. And I'm excited to get her on here for a third time. Hopefully it's not like a three strikes her out situation. But, you know, we'll see how it goes. You'll have to come back next week to hear how that conversation goes. And then in two weeks, yeah, we're going to keep the mono stream going. I know it's outside of May and May Nose and all that. But we're going to keep the mono stream going because Chris McMillan from The Shadow Over Portland is going to join me as well. And we're going to talk about some other things Monos related and, and expanding the Monos verse. The Monos verse. Okay, now I want an alternate version of the MCU, but instead of Marvel, I want it to be Monos Cinematic Universe. And man, the fan fiction wheels are spinning in my head right now. Anyway, that's coming up over the next two weeks. And then we'll see what happens. I've got some ideas, I've got some feelers out. I've got a couple of recordings in the bag. Just make sure you stick around at monsterkidradio.net to keep up to date with everything that we're doing. Or again, Facebook or Twitter or anything else. Also, I don't know if you follow us on YouTube, but the Team Death YouTube channel is back. 
We took a break from that as well because of the whole getting married thing and everything, but we're back. Those wheels are turning as well. Team Death, which you can find at teamdeath.com, and death is spelled D-E-T-H. That's D-E for Derek, T-H from Beth. Teamdeath.com, or just look up Team Death on YouTube, and you're going to find some Team Death Goes to the Movies YouTube videos where we went and saw Chop and Steel and the new Little Mermaid film. And we've got some other things in the works as well. I've got a video that I'm editing right now for a rather unique experience that Team Death got to, well, experience, and some other things in the works too. So please like and subscribe over at our YouTube channel at Team Death. That's teamdeath.com or again, Team Death over on YouTube or follow the link in the show notes. Okay, that's it. Remember, until next week, Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, a 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Manos, The Hands of Fate. That is copyright 2019, The Seatopians. They've given us permission to play their music on the show. You can find them at theseatopians.bandcamp.com. Pick up their album, Underwater Ally, or any of their other works, and let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. My name is Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. There is no way out of here. Ciao. Ah!